Amen. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. And once again, I am not Pastor Rusty. Um, so uh, he is under the weather, and I think he is more upset about not being here than he is the fact that he is sick. Um, and yep, see, we got a, a motion back there in the back. Uh, so we, we will miss him uh, for sure. But uh, again, it's always a privilege to step in um, and be able to just bring the word of God to you guys um, this morning. And uh, if you are visiting here, we want to welcome you to Cornerstone. Um, if you have not been able to meet Pastor Rusty, um, I, I encourage you uh, to come back, please, and be able to meet him. And you've got uh, Chris back here as one of the elders of the church as well. We are glad that you're here with us on this Lord's Day to worship with us, and we pray that you are blessed by this time with us. Um, so for those who have kind of been here, and as I've been either filling in or going through, we're going through the book of Romans uh, last week. Um, we were, we were in Romans as well. We we're going to kind of continue with that and move on um, in this first chapter that Paul is covering. So if you have your Bibles here, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. And we've been going through this book and the foundation of faith and my prayer is so far that God has spoken to you through the very few verses that we've been able to go through. But today's passage will begin to draw back the curtain and expound on this righteousness that we were talking about last week uh, in his introduction. And with that said, let us turn our attention to this morning's text. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this time, Lord, that we can open your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds, help us to receive it, apply it, or remind us. And may you be glorified and your church be edified this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this text before us is the foundation of understanding God's revelation of the gospel. Remember, he's pulling back the curtain here. He has given us the gospel in the first line of the book of Romans. He's told us whose gospel it is. And I want you to notice the sudden change in the tone of the letter from which we looked at last week. We saw last week that Paul introduced us to the revelation of the righteousness of God. That the righteous will live by faith. They shall live by faith. But no sooner than he did, he introduces to us another revelation, and that's the wrath of God. 
And Paul's reason for writing in this order is because no one can fully appreciate the good news except against the backdrop of our guilt before a holy God. How can someone know that news is good if they don't first know that there is bad news? This is why in our gospel presentation, we start with the law, because none of us can keep it. So understand the good news is an announcement to people who universally are under the indictment of God and we are exposed to his wrath universally across the board. People today are not particularly concerned about the gospel because they do not know anything about the law of God. And they are not at all familiar with the revelation of his wrath. I mean, if we think for a moment, if people were sensitive to the anger of God toward them, toward sin, they would be so moved that they would want to run as quick as they can to hear the gospel. But their hearts are hardened that they have no fear of God. And we often have all heard it preached that God loves you, what? Unconditionally. And when they hear that, they see no reason to fear God. So we see here in this first part here, we see the wrath of God revealed. We're going to break this down a little bit. It's a little bit, if we don't get all the way through it, it's going to be a two-parter. That's what I like to say. It's going to be two parts, all right? So we'll get through what we can. The first thing we're going to see here is the wrath of God revealed. We see the Greek word that Paul uses here is wrath. It's orge in the Greek, okay? It's orge in the Greek. The point of Paul's use of words here is that God is not simply annoyed or irritated. God's anger is one of passion with eruptions of rage and fury. See, we don't like to think this way when we think of a loving God. It is perfectly appropriate for a holy and righteous God to be moved to anger against evil. It is perfectly appropriate. A judge with no disgust against evil would not be a good judge. And this text tells us that God is angry with two things. Ungodliness, or in reverence, and unrighteousness. So when we think of these terms, we tend to think of ungodliness as a religious transgression, such as blasphemy or irreverence, whatever that may be, the definition, and unrighteousness as an immoral activity or a pattern of sin. That's how we tend to think of these things. It's a, it's a multitude. So we might read this and say that God is angry at us for being irreverent and immoral, but I don't believe that this is the push for the text here that Paul is talking about. And context gives us this. Because Paul uses a grammatical structure that we find sporadically throughout the Bible called a hendiatus. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. A hendiatus, which literally means two for one. We find this all throughout scripture. Two distinct things connected by a conjunction to point to just one thing. Let me give you an example. To look with eyes and envy instead of with envious eyes. Two for one. So the proper understanding of what Paul is saying is that God is angry. He is furious with a particular sin here. Not a multitude, but in this context, a particular sin. So when we begin to examine that sin, it is seen to be both ungodly and unrighteous. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are very generic terms 
that can cover a multitude of sins. But Paul is not talking about that. He hasn't viewed one particular. It's a universal sin, one committed by every single human being. It is the sin that most clearly expresses our fallen nature in Adam. And Paul does not leave us to guess at the nature of the sin. God is provoked to an orge of anger against the sin of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So if we haven't figured out what that particular sin is, he tells us the truth of God suppressed. The single sin that provokes God's wrath against the whole human race is the sin of suppressing the truth. Every human being, the root of the Greek word translated suppress is katakang, which can also be translated to be to hinder, to stifle, to incarcerate, to put in detention, to obscure or to repress. So you might think of a spring or coil. I don't know how many guys in here work on cars. I've done it. Don't ask me to do your springs. I will not do them. I hate them. I, I, it's just, it's just a, it's an orgy of anger for me. Okay to do springs on a vehicle. But anybody who's ever done it, if you try to suppress a string yourself and you try to put all, first of all, take your entire body weight, even if you can, but you're going to have something fighting against you. It's going to be trying to go and recoil back the entire time. This is the idea that we're getting here. While you are pushing it down, it is resisting your strength and is wanting to spring back up and recoil to its original position. Our original position is our fallen nature. So I think the question here, so by nature, we take the truth of God and we press it down. We force it down to get it out of our mind, but we can't get rid of it because it's always and everywhere pushing back. The specific sin here is the suppression of truth. That is the context. That's what Paul is speaking of in this verse. We've read this many times and our minds go straight to the multitude of sins and we can just sit here and fill in the blanks. But he is speaking particularly of one. So I think the question we must ask next is what is what truth is being suppressed? That begs the question. Paul tells us for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has what? Shown it to them. We see this in verse 19, the truth that every human being suppresses is the truth of God, what he reveals of himself in creation to the whole world. We've even used this in our evangelism, that men are without excuse. We need to understand something. This is not the truth of God we learn from the Bible. Okay, we suppress that too. But here Paul is writing about a truth that is known about God apart from the Bible. A knowledge of God that God himself plainly makes known. And the Greek word here is phoneros, which means to show plainly. It's where we get the word phenomenon. And it's clear, so plain that everybody gets it. It is plain and clear because God himself has given it. Gnosis is the Greek word, which means without knowledge. It's where we get agnosticism or an agnostic. Oftentimes we meet people who are either claimed to be atheists that don't believe at all. And then we meet an agnostic who I believe is in even more danger because what they're saying before a holy God is 
You didn't give enough reason. You didn't give enough evidence that you exist. Which, according to Paul here, he gave plenty. God has plainly and clearly shown himself to everyone. Verse 24, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God has made his self-revelation clearly seen to everyone since the creation of this world. Clearly seen. Every second since the very beginning of creation, God has been making himself known through the things that are made. God does this so that his testimony to his nature is plainly evident. Someone asked what happens to the poor, and I've actually, actually had this conversation before. What happens to the poor, innocent native in Africa who has never heard of Jesus, right? They go straight to heaven, right? Because they never heard. But Jesus did not come into the world to save innocent people. And people think that those who have never heard of Jesus are somehow innocent. That's the mindset. But Jesus came into a world already under the indictment of God the Father because it has rejected him. Everyone. We must cast it out of our minds of the idea that there are innocent people anywhere. Church. Another question often asked, will God send people to hell for rejecting Jesus? Of whom they have never heard. Church, God is not going to punish someone for rejecting somebody he has never heard of, but their destination is hell for the rejection of the one they have heard of. Because it's been clearly given by God. And for that reason, every person is exposed to the wrath of God. This is why if we are left to our sin, this is why we are born into sin. If we are left in that, our destination is hell. We are under this indictment. The only possible way someone can be rescued from the wrath is through Christ. Paul is setting the foundation for the urgency of the gospel. This is why he's writing this in this order. When it speaks of his eternal power and divine nature, we need to understand this does not give us all the specific details about the character and the nature of God. But it certainly gives us knowledge of God in general. For example, God's eternal power and his inerrant attributes, immutability, omniscience, omnipresence, and all that fits deity are made clear through nature. I mean, how many of us can go into the mountains and you look off in the distance and you see just the, I mean, or to the beach? It's clear through nature. God also has a sovereign right to impose obligations upon his creatures without their permission or assent. Why? Because he's the creator. We are the creature. (laughs) He has the right to command from his creatures what is pleasing to him. Paul says that all these things are made clear to us. He then goes on to explain the motivation or the principle for the revelation of God's wrath. He says they are without excuse. There it is. Man has no basis for an excuse to God's indictment, to his judgment. What answer will fallen humans try to give a holy God on the day of judgment? Well, you didn't give me enough evidence. I didn't see it. There wasn't enough there. 
I believe that answer is found in the language itself. The Greek word, nosko, means to know. But it can also mean to know intellectually by cognition or to know intimately. As we see in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. So you see where this term is used in two different ways. The word here in Genesis denotes an intimate knowledge, one the Bible uses to refer to those who are born of the Spirit, are born unto this intimate, personal knowledge of God that only the redeemed have. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians about the Spirit who gives that kind of knowledge, he says that the natural man does not know God in that sense. There's no contradiction there. And here in Romans, Paul says that man's problem is not that that the knowledge fails to get through in the sense of a cognitive awareness of the reality and existence of God. God is angry because the knowledge does get through. It's what we do with the knowledge that provokes the wrath of God. Knowing God, we refuse to honor him as God. Neither are we grateful. This is the suppression of of truth, the truth of God revealed in creation. So the most fundamental sin in our fallen corrupt nature is the sin of idolatry. One could say that pride and idolatry is the foundation of every sin we commit. The sin of refusing to honor God as he is. We want to strip him of his attributes, turn him into a God made in our image, a God we can live with, a God that we can be comfortable with. People say God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. We've heard this for many, many years. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of love revealed in Scripture is also angry with sin. He's the God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. We cannot embrace the attributes of God that make us comfortable and reject the rest. When we do that, we join the rest of humanity that suppresses the truth of God and refuses to honor him as God or be thankful. And the refusal to honor and worship God in hearts that are not filled with the joy and gratitude of what he gives are what define our depravity. Look at verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now we begin to see the consequences of God for all. Because men refused to glorify God as God, they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Have you ever noticed that some of the most brilliant minds, many who were firm in the reality of God, which everything they thought or did flowed. But then you have other brilliant minds who deny the reality of God and spend their lifetime trying to convince themselves and others. If at the very beginning of the pursuit of knowledge, people categorically deny what they know to be true, the reality of God, then frankly, the farther farther away they will Go from him. When Paul speaks of hearts that are dark, he uses the word foolish. Now understand, to the Jew, the judgment of foolish is not an intellectual judgment in the way that we use the term today. You fool, we're thinking of an intellectual. We're judging your intellect. For a Jew, it is a moral judgment. 
This is why Jesus warned against calling people fools in Matthew chapter 5, verses 22. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is a moral judgment to the Jew. The fool is not only being stupid, he is also being wicked because he is denying what he knows to be true. The indictment on all people is this. They refuse to honor God as God. That's it. They refuse to honor God as God. It's not that they fail to know God and therefore do not honor or thank him. They do know God, but will not honor him or be grateful. Because what's been clearly given by God himself. They refuse it. This is the massive condemnation in which we find ourselves as fallen human beings. And against that knowledge, the gospel comes. It's against that backdrop. Verse 23 here. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God, the majestic, self-existent, eternal God of heaven and of earth and began to worship birds, bears, and totem poles. It, it, It is. It makes you chuckle, right? Can anything be more ridiculous than a religion that builds on a fundamental refusal to acknowledge what is known to be true? Can anything be more ridiculous than trading in the glory of God for the creature? He says in 24 and 25, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged in the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. The word exchanged is a critical term here. It is the Greek word metalasso. It is the, the read the text through the eyes of modern psychiatry in a way, which works in terms of repression and suppression. What kinds of ideas do we tend to suppress or repress? We do not push down pleasant thoughts. Amen? We push down frightening thoughts and bad memories. People go to see a psychiatry because they have a nameless anxiety or a dread. They do not know why they feel phobic. So the psychiatrist begins to probe them with analytical questions. He checks their background. He asks about their dreams, begins to probe their subconscious. He knows that when people attempt to repress things, they do not destroy the memory. They exchange it for something they can live with. Something that will not terrify their minds. There's nothing more terrifying to a sinner than a holy God. In trying to explain the universal fault of religion, we've all heard him, Sigmund Freud, asked, why is it that people are so incurably religious? He claimed that we have invented God to deal with things in nature that we find frightening. He explained that by inventing God, we personalize nature. We feel deeply threatened by hurricanes and fires and tornadoes and pestilence and disease and armies, but we do not have the same terror concerning our personal relationships. If someone is hostile toward us, what do we do? There are many ways that we can try to diffuse that anger. We can try to appease an angry person with words or gifts or flattery, whatever it may be. We learn how to get around human anger, but not 
when it comes to negotiating with a hurricane? How do we appease an earthquake? How do we persuade cancer not to visit our household? So Freud thought that what we do is we begin to personalize nature. And we do that by inventing a God to put over a hurricane, the earthquake, and the disease. And then we talk to that God to try to appease him. Obviously, Freud was not on the Sea of Galilee. When the storm arose and threatened to capsize the boat in which Jesus and his disciples were on. The disciples were afraid. Jesus was asleep. So they went to him and they shook him awake. And they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We all know the story. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. We find this in Mark chapter four. There's not even a breeze in the air. You would think the disciples' gratitude would have led them to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for removing the cause of our fear. But that's not what the scripture tells us. Instead, they became very much afraid. Their fears were intensified and they had said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were dealing with something transcendent. They were dealing with something that they have never seen before. And what we see in the disciples is what they call a xenophobia. It's the fear of the stranger, the fear of the strange things that we cannot wrap our minds around. The holiness of Christ was made manifest in that boat, and suddenly the disciples' fear escalated. More so than the storm that was about to capsize the boat. This is where Freud missed the point. If people are going to invent religion to protect them from the fear of nature, why would they invent a God who is more terrifying than nature itself? Why would they invent a holy God? Fallen creatures, when they make idols, do not make holy idols. We prefer the unholy, the profane, the secular, a God we can control. Understand, in Romans, the apostle brings us to this place where we have no excuse. This is crucial. Because there is a gospel, a false gospel, that is going around so quickly at a pace that far outweighs the true gospel. It's a shallow gospel, and it brings us to a place where no one has an excuse. Where ignorance cannot be claimed because God has so manifested himself in every creature that every last one of us knows that God exists and he deserves our honor and thanks and is not to be traded in or swapped for the created things. Paul outlines the dreadful consequences that fall on a race of people who live by refusing to acknowledge what they know. This is what he's outlining here. He's starting here, and it's going to start to give us the urgency for the gospel. And I kind of want to leave us with that. 
the urgency of the gospel. Understanding this, we've all probably heard this. If you've grown up in church or whatever, you've, you've heard this talk. You've heard these different things that we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. But have you ever thought to the point that universally, every single person is without excuse? And the urgency that is there on those who have been born again, literally born from above, and you were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have been commanded, not suggested, to take the gospel to all nations. Beginning in your backyard, in your sphere of influence. The urgency that is there, that Paul lays out for us, this is why he starts with it. The result is a futile mind, a blackened heart, and a life of radical corruption. That is the consequence of this. That is the consequence, guess what? That you and I, before we were born again, before God drew him to himself and saved us at the appointed time, guess what? That was you and that was me. Blackened, darkened hearts, enmity with God. Literally, what that means is we are enemies of a holy God in that state. That's universal. Until God draws someone to himself and he does what only God can do. But we have the privilege to take something, the gospel, and be faithful with it and just give it. That's a privilege. God doesn't need us, but he allows. (laughs) It is a privilege. But yet so often in our lives, we miss the urgency of the gospel. Paul is starting with it. And I'm glad when I read this, that he's sitting here and he reminds, every time I read the book of Romans, he reminds me right off the bat, every single person falls under this consequence. Every single person has no excuse. But how beautiful are the feet of those who take good news. Amen? Where's the urgency? Because oftentimes, even our religion can become an idol. Something we can control once a week, come to church. We need to be careful. We need to remember what Paul is teaching here. We need to remember that when people are left in their sin, guess what? Yes, we understand God is sovereign. Yes, we know that those who have been chosen before the foundations of the earth, you are absolutely right. There is an elect. We know the Bible teaches this. If you don't understand that, guess what? It's okay. Because I don't completely understand it either, but I know it's true. This is what I do know. I don't hold the book of life in my back pocket, because if I did, I would pull it out and tell every single one of you right now, you're good, you're good, you're good, bad egg. But we're not. So therefore, we've been commanded to go and tell everyone. It's not our business to know who before the foundations of the earth God has chosen to redeem and those who are the reprobate that he's chosen to pass over. What I do know is that it is not an injustice. People say it's not fair. It's not fair that God chooses some and not others. Let me, let me tell you what's not fair. You, you want to know talk about fair? The fact What would be fair is if God didn't do anything and we all go to hell. That's fair. The fact that he even chose to save any, any at all, when he is a holy God, 
sending his son here to do what we could not, and then imputed his righteousness. He gave us his righteousness, and he took on your sin on the cross, my sin on the cross, and he died. And he was risen again. A public proclamation to the world from God the Father that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and listen to everything he says. Church, there's an urgency. I know we had a, a team that went out and did evangelism this, this last week. There's, there's, there's just an urgency. Thank God that we have that mindset here at Cornerstone. Amen? My prayer is not what we do collectively as Cornerstone. My prayer is for us individually in your lives. Is there an urgency there? When you go to work, that person that you might ride in a truck all day long, if you got a partner with, in your workplace, that, do you have conversation? Is there an urgency? Do you know where they stand? That's my prayer. And I believe that's the prayer of Cornerstone as well for this body of Christ. As we switch gears into the Lord's Supper here, and Brother Chris comes to lead us through that, contemplate. Because what's about to take place here is a celebration, but yet it's also a reminder of God's wrath against sin. And as he explains this, if you are sitting under the sound of my voice and you are here and you are not born again and you are not born from above, then today is the day of salvation. And if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself, then you can't do nothing about it anyways. Because who are we to say to God, why have you made me this way? He's the creator. We are the creature. He holds the heart of kings in his hand, according to the Psalms, and he moves them to wherever he pleases. And for us to say otherwise means that we take God from being holy, omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, sovereign, and we take him to an idolatry of having a God that we can control. If God is God, then he is God of all.